Welcome to First Baptist Church in Belton. We are glad you found us. We seek to know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally together. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. church. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, as we begin our time together, um, yes, I'm sitting down right here. So if you can see me, um, as we begin our time together, I wanted to, um, interview, if you will, a good friend of mine. And many of you might know her. Her name is Abby Clow and she serves on our staff as our digital communications uh, manager. And, um, so if you're on our social media or see a lot of our stuff online, it's because of Abby and a lot of the work that she does for us. Um, but I wanted to just begin our time together of you getting to know her a little and hearing her story. And so Abby, um, I know that you had a unique upbringing and, um, some of our people may be familiar with that and others may not. Um, but if you would, wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about your family and your upbringing. Yeah. So I grew up as a missionary kid and my family has served on the mission field since I was three years old. Um, we lived in Mexico for five years and then moved to Honduras in 2010, um, where my parents continue to serve. So as a, as a missionary kid, um, I, I obviously wouldn't understand that, but I'm sure you've had moments where your childhood, um, had unique experiences and helped you grow in Christ um, and that impacted you greatly. I would, I would love for you to share um, a few of those moments in your life that really impacted your discipleship growing up. What are some of those things? Um, yeah, so I remember um, when we were preparing to move to Honduras, it was about a year after we left Mexico. We were living stateside temporarily, um, and my parents had just told my siblings and I that we would be moving um, and I was devastated. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to leave the friends that I'd made in the States and the school I was at. I really enjoyed living there. Um, and I remember one morning I was sitting on the front porch with my parents talking about the move and, um, you know, just talking about how much I was struggling with the idea of, of leaving. And my dad was telling me that it was a very difficult decision for him to make, you know, moving his family to a country we knew nothing about really. And, um, you know, just knowing that, especially me, I was struggling with, um, just not really wanting to go. And, um, he was heavily considering not going simply because he knew it was, it was a difficult decision. And, um, so much so that he'd called the company he used to work for in Chicago, um, to see if there was an opportunity to, to go back and work for them, um, so that we could stay in the States. But, I remember this conversation so clearly just because it was such a pivotal thing in my journey of discipleship. Um, this one thing my dad said to me, he said, you know, Abby, I could, I could make the decision to keep us here just to, to make you happy and keep us safe. But, um, doing so would be disobedient to the Lord's call. Um, and, and, you know, making that decision to stay here, I would be putting us in more harm by being disobedient. Um, than if we were to go. Um, and looking back now, as difficult as that like situation, those circumstances were, um, I understand that he was putting us first. He was putting me first by putting Jesus first. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Abby, for sharing a little bit of your story. And today, church, we're going to be talking about discipleship. And um, I wanted you to just hear a little bit from Abby's journey of how... Um, by her dad choosing Jesus first, he was actually loving his family best. And, um, and we're going to be talking a little more about discipleship this morning. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather together to open your word, to, to share together, to hear stories of how dad has impacted a daughter's life and his family's life. Lord, many of us within this place, we have those similar stories of people within our lives that have made you first. And that's how they actually loved us best. And, and so, God, I thank you so much for Abby and her story. And I pray that it would encourage our hearts this morning to pursue you, to know you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, as we open your word, God, I pray that you would speak to us from it. We know that it is yours. We know that it is living and active. And so, God, we pray that we would submit ourselves to it this morning. And it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And when you get there, I want to encourage you to, to keep your Bible open throughout the sermon because what we're going to do is we're going to read small parts of Luke chapter 14 and then discuss it a little bit and then we'll go back to some more of that passage and then we'll discuss it some more. And so we're going to be using it all throughout the message. So Luke chapter 14 and we'll begin reading in verse 12 um, here in just a moment. Well, today we continue our series called Identity. We're focusing on the core values of our church. Now, it's important for you to know that these core values do not replace our mission of knowing, serving, and sharing Jesus. They actually complement the mission. So our mission and values are are married. One way to look at it is to see that our core values and our mission are who we are as the people of God at First Baptist Belton. They, they form our identity as a church. Now, how we do things should be shaped by our mission and values. The mission and values are, are what we hold tightly to, not how we accomplish them. How we do things, our ministry programs, our efforts, um, those, have, those have changed and been different throughout the history of our church. They will continue to be different as we move into the future. Actually, it's important for us to know that how we do things will even adjust and be different when we call a new pastor. But how we do it isn't where our focus needs to lie. Who we are, our mission, our values, these need to remain what unite us and propel us into future gospel ministry. So that's why we're focusing on these core values as a church. So a few weeks ago, we began this series by talking about undistracted excellence. And then we talked about sacrificial worship. And then last week, we spent some time focusing on prioritizing the Bible, that we want to be a Bible-centered church filled with Bible-centered people, that all of life and ministry is informed and shaped by God's Word, the Bible. This week, we're going to look at one more of our core values, and it's this, transforming discipleship. Transforming discipleship. Similar to weeks before, you'll see a statement on the screen, and I want us to read this together um, as we learn, as we dig into transforming discipleship. Let's read this out loud together. Everything we do as a church is intended to help people grow in their relationship with God by teaching them to abide in Christ, to practice spiritual disciplines, 
to love God and people, to develop their unique gifting in the church, and to embrace their calling to impact the world. Thank you. Now, in Luke 14, our passage today, Jesus explains what it means to follow him, what it, what it is to be his disciple. And he's very straightforward when he talks about true discipleship. And as we begin looking at transforming discipleship, I think it's important for us to consider as a church and for us to understand what Jesus calls us to as disciples. That's where we're going to start. What does Jesus call us to? Because it's important for us to know that because we can't disciple others if we don't know what Jesus himself has called us to as his followers. And so that's where we're going to begin looking this morning. I want you to first notice in our text this point. Transforming discipleship reveals a disordered heart. Transforming discipleship reveals a disordered heart. Begin reading with me in verse 12 of chapter 14. He said also to the man who had invited him. So this is going back to verses 1 through 11. This is Jesus talking. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, if you stop there for just a moment, Jesus is telling these people how to really throw a party. Right? He says, don't invite your brothers and your relatives thinking that they'll invite you to another party, that you'll have this um, be invited back. Actually, when you throw a party, give preference to the marginalized, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Because they can't repay you. Well, then this religious leader, he, he hears these words and he, he's reclining at the table and he said, well, blessed is anyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Now, what is there to challenge with that religious person's statement? I mean, it's pretty orthodox. Everyone who eats in the kingdom of God is happy. Nothing wrong with that statement, but it's not what he says that's wrong. It's what he assumes. He assumes a place in the kingdom of God, which all Pharisees and religious leaders would believe because of their religious practice, their adherence to the law or even their heritage. So, of course, I'm going to be happy sitting at the table eating bread in the kingdom. Well, then Jesus, he picks up on this smug self-righteousness and he is about to say, well, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Let me tell you what it cost to eat bread in the kingdom. And then he begins this great parable in verse 16. Let's read there. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. 
Now, before you read on, here's what you need to understand about this, this part is Jesus is communicating language that would be familiar to them. In Jesus's day, the, the, in that culture, two invitations would be sent out. The first invitation would go out and it would be one that would kind of tell the date and the time and when the party is. All right. So it's, it's communicating. Here's when the celebration's happening. Well, then a second invitation would go out and that would come from the servant. The servant would then go on the day of the celebration and he would say, the party is ready. Preparations have been made. Come. It's time to celebrate. And so this language is familiar that Jesus is sharing with them as he talks about this great banquet. Let's continue reading in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I go, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So here the excuses begin to roll in. And this is where I want you to see their disordered hearts. The first disordered heart. A man says, I can't come because I've just purchased a field. Now, no doubt that that purchase is important. There's no doubt that that individual probably saved up for a long time to purchase this field. And it was a significant purchase for him. But think about it for just a moment. God, the sovereign supplier of all good, true, and beautiful, has invited you to a banquet. And you can't come because of your new purchase. You need to go check out the land that you just bought. Really? In comparison to the banquet? And so what we're seeing here is is his disordered heart toward his possessions, what he owns, what he's paid for. He values that as more important than this banquet. Here's what we need to notice here before we move on. If your possessions hold you back from treasuring Christ, then you're the one possessed. And if your possessions own your affections, then you also have a disordered heart. Possessions should not own us. Well, then the second disordered heart, you saw it. Another man gives an excuse, doesn't he? He says, well, I've just purchased five oxen. I must go and examine them. Again, very important for this individual. Very important. Two oxen were required for 50 acres, and that's the average land ownership. So five oxen were about 250 acres. So this is a big deal for this man. This is his livelihood, his job. These are important to him. But again, in comparison to, you're going to give priority to work over Christ and this banquet. You see, the pull is strong. The job is urgent and his heart is more enthralled with his work than he is with Christ. But the problem isn't the demand of work. The problem is that he has a disordered heart. 
And it's being revealed here. The third disordered heart. This one we can all relate to if you're married in the room. He says, I can't go. I've just been married. I want to spend time with my wife. Now this, of course, is reasonable. This is family. This is his wife. This is his new bride. This is important. He wants to spend time with his bride. That's not a wrong thing or a bad thing, but neither is the land or the oxen. The king of creation is throwing this epic party, this banquet, this celebration. And your answer is no, I'm too busy. Other people are more important. So here we see relationships. And there are always relationship demands that, if never denied, will result in distance from the most important relationship of all. Your relationship with God. So this is the image that Jesus begins to paint. The image is this. It's not that they can't come. It's that they choose not to come. It's not that they can't go. It's that they choose not to. And Jesus is saying that concerns with this world can keep us from the party. We can be caught up in things that we think are very important, possessions, family, business, and we miss God. We miss the kingdom of God. And in this passage, these people's hearts were so disordered that they cared more about the business of everyday life than they did God. Plainly, what Jesus illustrates here is a heart of idolatry. A heart of idolatry, prizing possessions, work, relationships, family, above the chief reward of Christ himself. But again, these are ordinary loves. These are good gifts given to them from God the Father. But how easily those good gifts can become extraordinary idols. A disordered heart. Well, then you can continue reading in verses 20 on, 21 on. The, the, the servant comes back and he says, they're not coming. The master becomes very angry at this. Of course, he would be. He gets very angry. And he says, well, then go out to the streets and go and tell the, li- the, the lame, the blind, the, the sick. Go, tell them to come to the banquet. So he goes out and he does it. And they come and he, he tells the master, he says, well, there's still room. It's not full. And the master being a loving master, he says these words, I want it to be full. So now go out to the highways and the byways, go out there and go tell them to come. The banquet is ready. But I want you to see what he says in verse 24. Very important. He says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He doesn't change the date. He doesn't send out another Evite. He doesn't send him another text and say, are you sure you don't want to show up? No. He says the party is happening and it's ready. It's come. So a disordered heart cost these individuals immensely. It costs them. So transforming discipleship reveals a disordered heart 
It shows us the idols that we have in our lives. Those things that we value as more important than God. Now, in a me-centered Christianity, we're tempted to soften the consequences. Jesus, when he says this, he doesn't really mean that we won't be in the kingdom if we have other priorities. Surely Jesus doesn't mean that. Well, Jesus is serious. He's serious. So serious that he says none will even taste his banquet. None of them. Me-centered Christianity cheapens discipleship. But true transforming discipleship counts the cost. It counts the cost. And this is the second thing that I want you to see. So we saw that transforming discipleship reveals a disordered heart. The second thing I want us to see is transforming discipleship requires a declaration of allegiance. It requires a declaration of allegiance. Look at your text at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. So this isn't just the people that were reclining at the table any longer. Now there's crowds around him. And Jesus turns to the crowds and he declares these words to them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here, Jesus begins to explain what true discipleship requires, a declaration of allegiance. Now, what Jesus says here is really striking There's three times in this text, we saw two, we'll see another one here in a moment. There's three times in this text that he says, if you're not willing to do this, you cannot be my disciple. You can't. He defines what it means to be a disciple. And so he first talks about family. Now, Jesus is not saying that the relationship between his disciples and their family members ought to be a bad relationship. So if you have a sibling in here and you're sitting there going, oh yes, I can hate my brother. That's not what he's meaning there. What he What he's saying is that he requires a disciple's loyalty to him to transcend every human relationship, even those relationships that are closest to us. Think of Abby's testimony for just a moment. Yes, her, her dad listened and her dad understood the, the struggle that she was facing. Absolutely. But her dad's loyalty had to be to Christ first, not her. And that's hard. That's difficult. That's challenging. But what did that do in Abby's life to show that he loved Jesus more? 
That's, this is what it's, Jesus is saying. There's no human relationship in this life, however close, that should surpass a disciple's loyalty to Christ. There's not a relationship more important. None. We are called to be utterly loyal to Jesus Christ. So in other words, when Jesus says, you cannot love your family and be my disciple, he's saying this, you can't love your family more than me and be my disciple. You must love him more than anyone. He must be more important to you than any relationship. J.C. Ryle, he was a pastor in England and a great, great pastor. He writes this in regard to this passage. Experience shows both in the church, at home, and in the mission field that the greatest foes to a man's soul are sometimes those of his own house. It sometimes happens that the great hindrance in the way of an awkward conscience is the opposition of relatives and friends. A collision of opinions take place frequently as soon as grace enters into a family. And then comes the time when the true Christian must remember the spirit of our Lord's words in this passage. He must be willing to offend his family rather than to offend Christ. There was time in my youth ministry days where I would be sitting in my office, true stories. I would be sitting in my office with two parents and their, and their child and their child had expressed interest in going into the ministry, preaching God's word, sharing God's word, or some even called to be missionaries all over the world. And those parents would sit in my office and try to convince their child with these words. Surely you don't want to waste all your knowledge to pursue something like that. True words. Actually, why don't you do this? Why don't you go to college, pursue something different, get something better just in case that calling falls apart? Here's another one that I heard. True story. You really don't want to do that. They don't make much money. True. But again, a family saying don't follow Christ's call in your life. I've been overseas. Some of you have done this. I've been overseas at different places and I've met people who just came to faith in Christ and literally they are fearful to go home. Why? Because they'll be kicked out. Abandoned. You no longer are a part of our family. Gone. But when push comes to shove, disciples choose Christ over family. A disciple's ultimate devotion and allegiance is not to relationships in this life. It's to Christ. Secondly, in this passage... We saw what Jesus says in the, at the end of verse 26 where he says that you must hate your own life. But you must take up your cross and follow me. Those who do not bear their own cross and come after him cannot be his disciples. Now what is he saying here? He's not telling them that, that they have to take up his cross. There's only one person that can take that cross up and that's Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can go and bear the sins of the world upon himself. 
He's the only one. So he's not saying take up his cross. He's saying take up your cross and follow me. He's telling us that following him is not necessarily going to be all sweet. It's not going to be a rose garden. It's not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to cost. Here's what Jesus is actually saying in that passage. What he's saying is, if you want to follow me, it's going to be a war. It's going to be a war. It's a war against your allegiance to self. Now, in a therapeutic culture, a culture of love yourself, this is very offensive and off-putting. The love yourself culture is everywhere. Trust your heart. Do what you feel is best. Do what you want to do. Trust your heart. Well, the problem with that is the Bible. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. And it's wicked. It's sick. Who can trust it? Jeremiah 17, 9. One pastor said it this way. I love his words. He says, my own mind is a poor EKG for my heart. See, the solution isn't to love yourself or do what you love because self is a big part of the problem. You might say that you know your own heart, but God says otherwise. We don't have the capacity or wisdom to understand the true wickedness of our own hearts. So if you're facing a dilemma, what job should I take? Should I date or marry this person? Should I follow this religion? It's common to hear people say, hey, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you do what you love. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. But what if your true self or what if your self isn't true? What if your assessment of what's good and true is off? What if there are actually jobs you shouldn't take? What if there are actually people you shouldn't date or marry? What if there are actual religions that are false? Do what you love. I can't trust my heart because it's deceitful. It's wicked. Again, J.C. Ryle is helpful here. He writes these words. It costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian, to go to church, that's cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice and follow Christ and believe in Christ and confess Christ, that requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins. It will cost us our self-righteousness. It will cost us our ease and our worldliness. All, all must be given up. You see, you love God, you gain the kingdom. Love yourself, you lose the kingdom. So Jesus here is he, he's inviting us to a war and he's saying that up front. You will have to take up your cross to follow me. He's saying that if you follow me, it will cost you to be his disciple. You declare allegiance to him rather than self every single day, every single moment. So when we take up our cross and we submit to God's kingdom, we prioritize his order. We renounce the reign of self for the reign of Christ. 
permitting him to reorder our lives however he sees fit. Death to self, life in Christ every single day. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says it this way. Every command of Jesus is a call to die. Every command of Jesus is a call to die. In each command of Christ, we have a choice, allegiance to self or allegiance to the Savior. Now, if we continue reading in verse 28, Jesus is going to give two brief examples of considering the cost of following him. He says this in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Here it is, verse 33. So therefore, because of those examples, what, I'm, what I've been talking about, Jesus says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All. The Greek word there for all is all. All of it. That was a joke, but it means all. All of it. You must renounce all to follow Christ. Now, why is Jesus saying this? He's not saying this to try to make the gate narrower than it already is. He's not saying this to try and discourage people from actually following him. He's actually not even saying this to give you financial planning or war tactics. What he's saying here is he wants to be completely truthful about what it means to follow him. Here's what it costs. And if you don't consider the cost, you're like a man who builds a tower and doesn't have enough money to complete it. Or you're like a warrior, a general, who goes to war and doesn't really even consider if he can win. No, when you come to follow me, you consider the cost, count the cost. Discipleship is costly. And our Lord spoke as he did to prevent people from following him lightly and carelessly. So he's saying these words as a warning. It's a warning to those who might follow after him easily, never realizing what's entailed in truly following him. It's a warning to those who want to name the name of Jesus as Savior, but really their allegiance is to self and world. In other words, those that want a Savior, but they don't want a Lord. It's going to cost to follow him. I recently read an article about a group of church leaders in the Chinese underground church. As I read this letter, it, it explained how leaders would huddle up for prayer and training and a pastor would stand at the door 
watching and warning them in case they were going to be attacked by state police. And as they sat in a small circle whispering together, they began to tell stories. One pastor shared a story about um, how he was telling how people in his own church were being kidnapped, tortured, their tongues being cut out because they've declared Christ as Lord. Another leader crying described how the government threatened to take everything away from their people if they didn't stop studying the Bible. And over and over, you read these stories throughout this article. And, and what I found interesting was after time, the floor of their gathering began to fill with tears as they shared these stories. And I couldn't help as I was reading that story to think about us. We struggle to come to church. We struggle to read and study our Bibles. We struggle to give our time and treasure to serve others. We struggle to share our own faith while people are literally dying because of their allegiance. Now, I completely understand the difference between living in a free country and a country that isn't free. And I'm grateful for my freedoms. Absolutely grateful. I also understand the difference between freedom in Christ and becoming too legalistic. I get that. I understand that. But I'm also aware that the tyranny of self is upon us and we must hate it, throw off its rule and embrace the reign of Christ. Oppression and persecution will come, church. It will come. And we must repent of the kingdom of comfort and return to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the cross, sacrificing ourself, our own lives, total allegiance to Christ. George Mueller said it this way, the will of God is to have no will of your own. In this passage, Jesus describes the kind of total commitment that he calls for from his followers. So we need to ask ourselves, have we responded by giving ourselves totally over to Christ? Transforming discipleship reveals a disordered heart. And as we abide in Christ and we spend time with our Lord in the scriptures, he reveals those idols. We repent of them. We turn away from them because of our allegiance to Christ alone. Jesus demands your total and undivided loyalty. That's what his disciples are like. This is what he lived and died to create men and women, boys and girls from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people who value Christ more than anything in this world. So church, let's take up our cross Renounce areas in which we have disordered hearts and give ourselves totally to costly but priceless Christ-adoring discipleship. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. But the reward, it's invaluable. It's invaluable. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to open your word and to share it together, to consider the cost of following you. Lord, for some of us in this room, we, we came to faith in you many, many years ago. And it was true. It was genuine. But maybe there's areas in our life that we've, we haven't surrendered fully to you. Maybe there's a sin that we have in our life that we habitually just fall into, that we give ourselves to. Maybe there's a command in Scripture that we've yet to just embrace and follow. So, Lord, I I pray that we would consider the cost once again, that we would lay aside self for allegiance to Christ. And, Lord, there's others of us in this room that we've yet to confess you as Lord. We've never surrendered our life to you. Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross for our sin. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you as their Savior and Lord, by your Spirit, I pray that you would work in their hearts. You would show them how dearly and how greatly they are loved by you. And that today they could receive the gift of salvation through you, Jesus. So Lord, I I pray that we as a church would take up full allegiance to Jesus Christ every single day, every single moment. And it's in your wonderful name we pray these things. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our song of invitation. I'm down here at the front. The altar's open. Um, I would encourage you to, whatever the Spirit's leading you to do in this moment, I would encourage you to do that. Let's sing together. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to call the church at 254-939-0705 if you need prayer or need to talk with someone. We're here to listen, help, and encourage.